Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome again wherever you are in our great country or actually welcome from all around the world because we do have others on this Voice America uh, variety channel listening in. This is Judge Jim Gray, excited to be with you and excited to present to you really one of the finest human beings I know. This is Dr. Earl Fuller, where he is uh, a baby doctor. He delivers babies and and has a great deal of insight about the medical system and, and things that we're all going to want to listen to. That's what we do here on All Rise. He is employing libertarian values. He's employing libertarian approaches of re- responsibility, treating equal opportunity for all and and just being compassionate in his life and his work uh, and on the golf course. Well, maybe not quite so much on the golf course. We'll have to find out. But it is really fun to be with you each Friday or uh, on demand thereafter. We will discuss these issues. We're going to roll up our sleeves and get into the medical system and see where it's going, according to a medical expert, a professional. So let's get just get at this. Dr. Earl Fuller uh, wrote a book called The Future of Medical Care in America. Certainly like to talk about that. He's from the, uh, from the Chicago area, is involved with obstetrics and gynecology, and got his medical degree at the University of Michigan Medical School. Those are great qua- decree- degrees and uh, qualifications, but I can tell you directly, and I'll say this to uh, Dr. Fuller's face, uh, his best credit is that he's married to a very wo- good woman, uh, Marge Fuller, who is an attorney and a, a force in the med- in the uh, legal profession. So, Dr. Earl, thanks for being with us. Thank you for taking the time and being with us on All Rise. Welcome. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for asking me, to, Judge Gray. <laughs> Indeed. So give us, or hey, you, as I'm called in my home. But at any rate, give us give us a little right, background yeah. about Dr. Earl Fuller. Uh, t- fill us in some blanks. Uh, your education, your background, how you found your way out here to Southern California. Sure. I was uh, when I finished my internship at uh, in my residency. I'm sorry. When I finished my medical school at Michigan, I went to my internship at Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago. And then I did my residency at the University of Illinois Research and Educational Hospitals in Chicago. Um, when we finished there, we moved out to Fullerton, California. Uh, I found Fullerton by accident because I couldn't afford the $35 rooms that motels took. And I was, and a friend of mine lived in Fullerton who was a, a, an attorney for Aerojet General. And he allowed me to stay with him for a week. And I found the town to be absolutely beautiful and moved here with my wife and four, three children at that time and had our fourth one we're here. And I've been practicing for about 32 years in Fullerton until I retired in about 1996 when I went and practiced with the flying physicians. And we used to fly down to Mexico and hold a clinic down there. And for the last 11 years, I've been the gynecologist on 
Tuesdays for a free clinic in Orange uh, where we treat patients. Uh, I'm just their Tuesday gynecologist. That's just amazing. Tell us a little bit about these flying physicians because, again, my view is that the, pub, the, the private sector, the foundations, the dedicated people like Dr. Earl Fuller, our guests here, really do a far more effective job at these various things than government does. Tell us about flying physicians because this is certainly not a governmental agency. What does it do? How long have they been doing it? Oh, it's been doing it for all for many many years. I mean, I, I haven't. What we used to do is uh, one weekend a month we would fly down to Mexico. They have a surgical center, uh, surgical center in one city, and then I flew in another city. I think we stayed in I, El Forte is where I stayed, and uh, San Blas is where the surgical center was, and we had a I had a clinic which was a general practice clinic. In uh, uh, very close to us, about within 30 miles of San Blas. And on Saturdays, I would just run the clinic, and people would come from all over the area to see us in the clinic, and we'd see maybe 40, 50 people in a day. And then we'd fly back. We'd go fly down Friday, hold the clinic on Saturday, and fly back Sunday. Um, then when the opening, uh, when this opening came up for the clinic, a free clinic in in Orange, I was able to go to a clinic without having to pay $500 a month to fly down there and having to pay, you know, uh, bills for uh, food and and, uh, and um, a room. And I could see essentially the same people, the same people who needed care and had no insurance, but um, I could do it four times a month instead of once a month. Sure. And... It's just been a wonderful, wonderful experience for me to meet and, and, and treat uh, really very nice people. I just do gynecology. I don't do obstetrics anymore, but that's because I'm 84. <laughs> well, your credibility just went down, Earl, because there's nothing 84 about you from my standpoint, <laughs> but, but good for you, and thank you for that. You know, I bet you've flown on a lot of small airplanes in, the, in your life, having been doing this. Uh, <laughs> that's that's something I'd prefer not to do, but good for you. Well, uh, yeah, I was a uh, uh, certified flight instructor, single engine, multi-engine, and instruments, and was huh. a, uh, a flight, an F senior examiner for the FAA. Uh, a medical examiner for the FAA and used to treat pilots mainly because watching them sit around in a room full of pregnant women was just amazing to look at their faces <laughs> when I came <laughs> yeah. to examine them. But, yes, um, indeed. You know, I uh, understand that there are people here in the United States that are fully as in need medically as they are in Mexico or other places around the world, which I find to be a travesty. And we're going to talk about our medical system in a minute, but please give a little bit of background because I advertised about her so highly about your great wife, Marge Fuller. Oh, she's spectacular. Uh, Marge is among the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And I've met a lot of very smart people and she's just brilliant. We, uh, we got, we fell in love in, at, at the University of Michigan. We went together for three years there until we got married. Uh, uh, we got married after my second year in medical school. Um, and then uh, uh, when we started our family, just as I, I was graduating, uh, we had our first son of the year I graduated. 
and our, we moved to Chicago and, and uh, started raising our family. And Marge was uh, with me, and she used to do she used to write for the medical journals. She would condense articles for the medical journals, um, and that's how we helped pay our some of our bills. Um, and then when March was, uh, when the children were in high school, in, in uh, graduate, in gr- grade school, uh, Marge was able to uh, get free up, and she decided she wanted to finish her degree. She had her master's, but wanted to go for something else. And it, all of a sudden, the legal degree hit her because she's superb in uh, in English. She was an English teacher and a master's degree in English. And she taught in high school, and she taught in, in college at Cal, Cal State Fullerton. And then when she decided to go back, she thought, gee, that would be just a great thing to use in the legal profession, because she reads and writes beautifully. And so she went to law school at USC, was accepted there, and she graduated, opened her own law professor profession, and began um, her practice in family practice law and made quite a good name for herself because she is very logic and very disciplined in her approaches, uh, did beautifully. In fact, Mar- she, she took care of a lot of big cases, of very That's interesting true. cases. And then when the, she began to realize that there was really no a large segment of appellate attorneys available in Orange County, and she switched over to appellate work and began uh, her career as an appellate attorney, so she'd start going to the appellate courts and the Supreme Court and uh, did that for the last 20 years. Yeah, and that's right. Things. Actually, I Earl, I met Marge for the first time when she I was being appointed or considered for an appointment from the municipal court up to the superior court, and she came over and interviewed me on behalf of the of the local bar association. I was very impressed, and we got to become friends thereafter. But Marge told me, and I don't remember. Maybe you can help me with this. About five years ago, when you came home one evening in early December and announced to her that you're going to retire at the end of the year. She looked at you and said, well, well, you mean the end of this year or the end of next year? To which you said, no, this year. And you retired something like three weeks later, as I understand it. Uh, when was that and what caused this sudden retirement as a highly respected medical doctor, Dr. Earl Fuller? Well, there's a bunch of things that happened at one time. Uh, uh, it was in 1996. I retired, I think, January 1st of 1996. Uh, what happened was... You know, obstetrics and gynecology is not a 40-hour a week. It's 100 hours or more. And uh, I had gotten to the position where I delivered the mother and the baby, and I was just about on the verge of having delivered the grandmother, the mother, and the baby. <laughs> and, you know, I was getting old. I was getting tired. I was burning out. My eyes were going. I had cataracts in both eyes. And so I didn't feel comfortable operating anymore. I wasn't sure. In fact, I got the cataracts removed. Um, and the malpractice insurance was going up. And I, I, it was just enough. I, I was burning out. And I okay, was but- beginning to, to not be as enthusiastic. 
when I started out in obstetrics, every day was a new miracle. And when I when it became uh, a drudge of darn it, I'm going to have to get out and go do it again. That lost some of the flavor, and I was said it's time to move on because I'm not sure. being effective as effective as I want to be. And fair uh, enough. But but compare the practice of medicine now, if you could, as opposed to how it was when you first began in that noble profession. Because I think it's changed quite a bit from the professional medical pro- oh, professional standpoint. What, what it, Lord, give us that comparison. People, oh yeah, when I talk to the people now, it's it's a real difference. I mean, you you got some big problems. The, the medical profession is now owned by corporations and by government entities. The medical profession uh, requires, you know, like the PPOs, uh, some of them required physicians to see a patient every seven minutes. Well, you can't make friends in seven minutes. My patients were my family. They were people who I brought up. I saw their kids. I, I saw their wives. I saw their their illnesses. I took them through hard times, and and we we you get to know them. Um, it, and nothing burns you out more than seeing these these people, uh, and and not being able to provide for them the kind of the kind of uh, medicine that they need or the kind of attention they need. Sometimes the best medicine is just to sit and listen, or or sit in counsel, and and you, when that's taken away from you, you lose half of what's important in medicine. Medicine is an art; it's a healing. It's it's not a it's not a business, and it's not a um, it, it's not some kind of a practice that you do like uh, if you crank a bolt or something like that. You have to deal with people, and people are feelings. They're, you can't separate them. So. If you can't do that, you have to see a patient in seven minutes. You've just destroyed half your effectiveness. The other things that happen is that um, you have to have, I was a specialist, so people who were in some of the insurance cases had to have paperwork done to be able to see a specialist. And all of a sudden, my practice was being deluged with paperwork. And uh, when I talked to my fellow practitioners today on the golf course, they're going nuts because they have so much paperwork to do that that takes half their time. Uh, And that's not the sort of thing you really want to get into. Uh, Then then there's other cost factors that have to be taken into effect. And I I don't pretend to be a a CPA or or a person who is really knowledgeable of what it's going to cost. But I do know that this has to be part of what you consider when you're doing medicine, and this is especially true when you're treating the people I'm treating who are people who have no insurance. Okay, so, you know, if you so, order, doc- order a prescription that costs them $30, they may or not, may not be able to afford it. Sure. Doctor, I've been taking notes while you've been, been talking about this because you're on the inside of this treasured medical profession. So let me take you back a little bit. You said that my patients are my family, which by the way is going to become the the title of this segment because it, it's just so apt. But you said that, you know, you, you 
you can't talk with people and see them within seven minutes and you just dedicated only to see them for seven minutes and you had these options that were taken away. How are they taken away? Tell us. Well, because you have such a load. I mean, if you're going to sit and talk with a patient for 20 or 30 minutes, you can't see more than about 10 or 12 patients in a, in a morning or 15 patients. But if you have to see 40 patients, there's no way you can do that. When I was a resident at the University of Illinois Research and Educational Center, uh, we would see, we had a clinic, and as the residency, we rotated through three services, the clinic service, the gynecologic service, and the obstetric service. When you're on the clinic service, you had about seven curtain rooms, and you would just go from patient to patient to patient. And sometimes... Uh, I can't remember exactly what happened. I think there was a strike of the people who were assisting us, and we wound up... I I remember having to see 80 patients in one day. Yes, 80 patients in one day. Do you know how fast you have to see patients to see 80 patients in one day? My goodness, I mean, it just doesn't work. But why? How, who, how are you forced to do this? And my understanding is... Because you had is, to see the patients who came in to be seen for, let's say, obstetric visits or, or minor gynecologic visits or major gynecologic visits. And you had to see these patients. You virtually took the history, understood what the problem was, went to that problem, and did what you had to do to see what you could do to solve that problem and moved on. Now, my, my view from the outside, Dr. Earl Fuller, is that the only variable with regard to the way the government is now addressing and the corporations are addressing medical care is because they want to keep costs down. So the only variable really is the amount of compensation reimbursement that they pay to the medical professionals. So when you're saying that you have to see, my goodness sakes, I mean, 80 people, uh, 80 patients, which cannot effectively be done, that's because you're being reimbursed less per patient. So in order to stay in business, you have to see more patients. Is that the reason? why this is increasing or or what no no that was because uh, what happened was that they we lost uh, i think someone was out in strike and so the, the much of the, oh. the, the so the physicians had to just do it all at, at one time and we didn't have people who could put people under rooms and we didn't have people who could take the blood pressure and, and do the stuff beforehand we didn't have people who could uh, see the patient okay. and counsel them a little bit and see what was, what was going on with them I mean, uh, this was just a real aberration in, in okay. the, uh, at well, the time. Putting the aberration okay. aside then, because there isn't always strikes to, to deal with, but am I basically correct that the reimbursement for your services has been reduced and that is, in effect, in many ways, from a practical standpoint, required you to see more patients in order to, to have that standard of living? Oh, I, well, you know, I, as I shut down over 20 years ago, that, that has not been a problem with me because from, from that time on, it was a donated time so that I haven't had a reimbursement problems. Now, other, my, other family, my other physicians that I see on the golf course today are getting reimbursed a lot less. And, uh, of course, the patients I deal with now have no insurance at all. Yep. So I have to be very careful about what I'm going to order them because 
the drugs have gone astronomical. What do you do with a diabetic who has no insurance and is a, um, a let's say, a, a laborer, and he's going to have to pay $800 a month for insulin? Sure. I mean, that, come that on. Just... Who the heck? Nobody can afford that kind of stuff. And no. that's absolute insanity. Well, the well, practice <clears throat> of medicine... The practice of medicine has changed quite a bit from my standpoint, again, being on the outside. Uh, you mentioned that if you're a specialist, you have so much paperwork to be done that you get deluged and you're spending half your time with paper. Tell us about that. Why, why has this happened uh, and how did it come about? Well, you, for, for if, you're, if the patient has insurance, you've got to fill out their insurance forms. If the patients have a PPO and you're a family practitioner, then you have to be able to get permission from the insurance company to be able to send this patient to a specialist. And then the specialist has to respond with the paperwork to be able to see this patient and, and limit his uh, time and, and effort to what the uh, insurance company will allow. So that didn't happen when you were first beginning in your practice? How is it different? Oh, no. Well, we had we had universal health care when I was when I started my practice. You don't remember, Jim? You're in the same county as I am, Orange County. <clears throat> we had a county hospital. If I saw a patient who was indigent and could not afford medicine and needed an operation, <clears throat> and I thought needed an operation for whatever, today I can get you a hundred doctors who will do the operation for nothing. I have no problem at all. The problem is the hospitals can't afford to do it or won't afford to do it. The hospitals can't put forward twenty-five dollars or $30,000 worth of, of um, uh, costs to be, for so a patient can be, have her gallbladder removed or so a patient can have her uh, hysterectomy or can have her breast removed unless it's for something that is um, immediately threatening her life. If she's got sure. cancer, I can get her emergency medical. If she hasn't got cancer, she's got, let's say, she needs an operation for a tumor mass, but it's not malignant. But sure. she doesn't like hauling around this tumor mass with her all the time. Well, there's no way I can operate on her because the, the, nobody's going to pay for the hospital's twenty-five or $30,000 for her to recover <clears throat> just because well, it makes her feel better. From the outside, again, I, I have heard numbers of stories, Dr. Earl, that this whole paperwork, the submitting of bills to insurance companies became a game that as long if you knew how to how to play that game and check the right box or, or oh, say the right yeah, now words. You're, now you're talking you get, about the, the yeah, you're talking about the game that they're having to play when they have to decide what what the, the operation was that they did. I mean we we did Yes. Uh, uh, you know, if you did a hysterectomy, well, if the hysterectomy is X amount of money, then operating for a tumor mass may be one and a quarter X amount of money. So it's got to be a hysterectomy plus a tumor mass. Or it just goes on and on, and it just never ends. And, yes. uh, and you, you, it's, an, it's a game to see if you can pick the highest to repaying the stuff. Uh, that's what these guys have to follow up. And you have to employ someone who is an expert in being able to to uh, pick the right numbers for the procedures that was done. 
and you have to pay those experts a fair amount of money in addition, which adds further to the cost. It's just it's a bureaucratic game from my standpoint. It, it's an awful game, and, and it's a silly game because that's not what medicine's for. I mean, that's not how people should be treated. Uh, what we do is we treat patients according to what they need, and you give them the time they need to get well and or to, or to express what their problem is, and you get them to the people who need to help them. If you're if you're not a specialist, if I've got a patient who needs a psychiatrist. You know, I got to get him to a psychiatrist, but because we came up with tranquilizers, they closed all the psychiatric hospitals. So patients who are severely ill don't get a chance to go to a hospital because there aren't very many left. And the ones that are left are private hospitals that cost an arm and a leg, and nobody can afford them. Uh, the uh, the the same thing is true of, of of medicine. I mean, just in my field alone. When I started, you know, we used to charge two hundred and fifty dollars for for obstetric care, and it would go down to two twenty five if you paid before the baby the, before the seventh month. Oh. Okay, that that was off the shelf. Now, my God, it's of eight or nine hundred dollars. The truth of the matter is that the cost hasn't changed; the money changed. The money is worth so much less because we're printing it like a, it's going out of style. Well, now you're talking like a libertarian, Dr. Fuller. Well, I'm not. Jim, you know, I I registered as a Republican 1956 when I turned 21, and I re-registered as a Democrat in 2018 when I couldn't stand what happened to my party. I just could not tolerate it. And and I'm probably closer to a libertarian than anything uh, because... Yeah, I understand that you have to be able to pay for stuff. The government doesn't have any money. It takes money from some people and gives it to other people. And it's where it spends the money is where it, what happened. And what happened to medicine is exactly that problem. You and I know we had a, a, a wonderful system where the county paid for people who couldn't afford to pay. And whatever operation this person needed, I went and did it. And I didn't have any problem with it, and I taught medical students how to operate. And when I did it, I was assistant clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at UCI, and I could teach medical students, and, and they helped me on these patients. And, and it worked out just fine. But as the cost escalated, the county couldn't afford it anymore, so they sold the hospitals off to the private use of the California uh, College of Medicine. So UCI is now a private hospital, the, and the they're in the same bind every other private hospitals, and they can't afford to give away care. Sure, everybody's the losing medicine money has to become room. really frustrating for you. I'm I'm hearing it from you. Would you recommend a young person that's so inclined to become a medical doctor now under these circumstances? Oh, are you, oh, you, you kidding? My God, it's the best. It's the best. <laughs> profession in the world. I mean, where else can you... People come to see you because you want, they want you to be That's nice right. to them. I mean, my God, what better thing you can do? And you get to see tremendous results because we have... You, you can train yourself into great, talented areas. I happen to love the area I was in. I, I did obstetrics and gynecology because it was just such a wonderful calling for me. But there's limitations, and I, I see the limitations growing greater every day. And I think I, it's almost reached the intolerable point. I mean, I have patients every day 
who need help and I can't provide it because it costs too much. Yes. It's that simple. Well, Dr. Earl Fuller, bless you for what you have done. Bless you for what you're doing. You're just a wonderful human being. And we're going to explore another options with regard to the practice of medicine and that noble profession after we come back from these few messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray again with my esteemed guest and friend, Dr. Earl Fuller, on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, with the total view that if we employ libertarian values, and, and we heard Dr. Earl Fuller say that uh, he is leaning in many ways toward libertarians, as we all are, we will all rise together. Uh, by the way, again, uh, I have a wonderful wife whose name is Dr. Grace Walker Gray, a physical therapist, and she has really asked me to take a point of less serious route, and usually I do that right after the break. So I can tell you, Dr. Fuller, that uh, a dentist and a manicurist got married, and now they fight tooth and nail. That's my effort at the moment for, for a little levity, and I got a chuckle from him. That's good. But I can also say, and I'll, I'll ask probably the most general question I can think of, and that is, what's the most important thing in life? And the answer to me is gratification. It's not power. It's not prestige. It's not money. You can, it's not even family. You can get gratification from that. But it is basically the view that the world is a somewhat better place because I was on this earth for, a, for my short period of time. And you're going back to your flying physicians. You're going back to your dedication to the practice of medicine for being able to help people in need. There has to be enormous gratification out of that. You really have to feel pretty good about that experience. Do you not, Dr. Earl? 
Oh, I do. I mean, it, it, it's given me more than I've given them. That's there's no question about that. This is the most. It it is uh, tremendously important to anybody who wants to feel worthwhile. I mean, I feeling can... worthwhile is what makes you makes you a person. Yes. Truly, truly so. And thank you on behalf of us all. You're a, a guiding light in that regard. Um, my patients were my family. is just simply so descriptive of this. So we're, I was starting to ask you off the air, and now I'll ask you on the air, put you on the spot. And we're straightforward in all rise. So give me an honest answer, which I know you will. But it's my opinion, and I don't know what the statistics are, that maybe 60% of the people in our country can take care of their own health needs without government involvement or whatever. So I would have them, in fact, we had a Dr. Clark Smith on this show on All Rise a while ago, and we were discussing this. I'd just be interested in your viewpoint from your perspective. So we would have a medical savings account in which, for example, we would put $5,000 in the equivalent of an ATM account and probably then purchase catastrophic health care uh, with a, maybe $1,000 uh, for, for the year, which would basically be medical care with or insurance with a $4,000 deductible. Whatever the numbers would be, I don't know. And then if I would go see you, for example, maybe I had a bad knee. And I'd say, well, doc, uh, should I get an MRI? And you'd say, well, uh, I don't know, Jim, I'll, I'll suggest an MRI. My response would be today, well, I have Medicare, I have Anthem Blue Cross insurance, and what it would cost me, you know, copay, maybe $30, something like that. Sure, why not? But if I was spending my own money on it, the doctor says, do you want an MRI? My response would be, logically, well, I don't know, doc. What's it going to show me and how much is it going to cost? And then you know, I would make that decision because I would be spending my own money. That's where we've gotten away from this because if you're not – if the recipient, if the customer is not spending the money, the prices rise and it becomes that game. So what has happened because of that? The prices have gone up well out of control, just unbelievably out of control. So instead, for those people that cannot afford cannot afford their own health care insurance, I would give them vouchers so that they could use those vouchers for the equivalent. They could form their own ATM account on a sliding scale so that people would be spending their own money instead of someone else's money and get away from the games. I think the cost would come down. Competition would go up. You wouldn't be required to fill out all this paperwork that you've been burdened with uh, and be able to see pretty much every patient. I know I'm hitting with you blind, Earl, but but what would be your thought about such a formula? I don't, that doesn't bother me in the slightest, Jim. What you're saying is that the, that the people get a chance to, to make a decision as to whether they want to pay that kind of money for that kind of service uh, as opposed to being denied or uh, having someone else have to pay it. I have no problem with that at all. That's no more different to me if you put away an account like that, maybe even tax-free, than if you were to have what I do. Right now I have Medicare, and I have another insurance company, Anthem Blue Cross, who who covers Medicare. So what Medicare won't cover, they cover, supposedly. And they can limit me if they want to, too. And they will probably, as we go through this and as we move on toward where the rest of the world is and get to more of a universal-type medical care, which is, I think, reasonably inevitable right now, you will see that uh, 
the people who can afford it will have to have a another side of a of medicine or some kind of a savings plan or another insurance plan because medicine is only going to survive under uh, Medicare for all if services are limited. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, I told you I'm 84 years old. When I have my first heart attack, the question is, should I have a heart bypass surgery? Should I have stents put in? Or should I be given a pill like uh, nitrous oxide to dilate my blood vessels as much as they can be dilated? Well, at 84 years old, uh, you know, uh, the Medicare is going to say, I'm, I'm, we're not going to put stints in you. We're not going to operate on you, doctor. We're going to we have a pill. Yeah. And that's probably going to be okay because I know darn well that I'm hoping that next heart attack is going to be a major one so that it'll end the problem because I don't want to be a lingering, you know, or cripple. On the other hand, uh, I've got... I've got a friend of mine who's an orthopedist. He had uh, an old man who was sitting in a wheelchair who couldn't get up because of his hips, couldn't get up to go to the bathroom. And he was in his 80s. His daughter had to lift him off the wheelchair and put him on the toilet. Okay, now this guy's going to have to have a fifteen dollars or $20,000 operation back then, in those days, to fix his hips. Then he could get up and walk around. You've got a still 84-year-old man who doesn't do anything but walk around the house and can go to the bathroom by himself. It's worth it to his family. Is it worth it to the government? And that's what's going to happen. Those are the kind of decisions that are going to have to be made. And unless there's a private system where you can have additional monies to go ahead and do the things that you want to do because you don't want to spend your life as a cripple where you can't even move, you're stuck. Right now in my clinic, I've got patients who I could fix with a simple operation, a really simple operation. I can get 100 doctors who will do that operation tomorrow. But the problem is the hospitals are saying, look, we're losing money on the emergency room like crazy. And now you want me yeah. to take and lose another fifteen dollars or $20,000 on a patient for recovery just because you want to do a nice thing to somebody? That's nuts. I can't afford it. You'll bankrupt sure. the hospital. And, yeah, so, and, and that's true. But uh, my view is that our medical system is really, if, if people wanted to be overseen by the equivalent of the Department of Motor Vehicles, that's where we're going, that it's becoming such a bureaucracy. And of course, the hospitals, you, they're required, as I understand it, to take people into the emergency rooms and they lose money on it because, you know, the people that can't afford their their health insurance or their other care, they're not dumb. They, they know that going to the emergency rooms is a way to do it, but that's the most expensive medicine that you could you could pr- to produce so let's get it back to the private sector to bring back competition to stop all of this paperwork stuff and I'll still put in a system in which people could, that are in need of medical attention can't get it because I think that we're, we're going in the wrong direction and I, I'll disagree I'll part company with you on this universal health care because uh, that has just the government running everything although Kaiser works fairly well but but uh, I just don't want the government to be as involved. Uh, do you see the well, Department of Motor, Motor Vehicles in our in our system today? Okay, but the Department of Motor Vehicles does license people, and, they, and people do get licensed, and they do a, a valuable service. It's a pain in the butt to have to go there. I mean, that's where I changed my registration, but absolutely, that's what has to happen. 
And, and like it or not, I'm seeing patients now who have no insurance. So they have no care at all. And sure. what do you do when you have no care and you have no way to get care and you have sick people? It's awful. That's not fair. That's it's not just right. not who we so, are. It's just not who we who are. We are a society that should be able to take care of our people, and I fully agree with you there. Um, okay, well, Earl, then Medicare, Medicare for All is a society doing it. And, and I'm going to tell you right now that if we do that, go that route, that Medicare for All is going to mean a lesser level of medical care for everybody. But if you can supplement it with savings or you can supplement it with insurance, then you can restore the normal amount of medical care. Also, it gives you the ability to really begin to negotiate problems. For instance, you won't see $800 a month insulin treatments if people who are insulin dependent are on Medicare because Medicare will negotiate with the people and say that's unaffordable, we're going somewhere else. And if you don't want to sell it to us, we'll go to Canada or we'll go to Mexico, we'll get their their insulin. And all of a sudden the prices will be back to reasonable, sensible levels. And that's Uh, right, because the pharmaceutical companies have the control to keep the United States for people in the United States from being able to buy medicines out of Canada or Germany or wherever, which yeah, is first-rate dumb. But if the government dumb. is responsible, for, but if the government has to do the negotiating, then you're talking about a, a <laughs> whole countrywide negotiation, and they're not, they're not going to be able to push them around like that. Sure. You can't sure. do that to, that you can do with the private. So that gives you some really negotiating abilities. Uh, it's not a perfect system. And it's not going to be a perfect system. And if I go to that system, I may be the guy who gets the nitrous oxide rather than the the stint. But I'm willing to take that chance in order to be able to get provide care for all of the people I'm seeing now who don't get any care and who need minor operations. Look, I, I deal with patients, let's say, Jim, who have an abnormal pap smear. And I go through several kind of things to get the pap smear normal, which uh, involve um, doing the pap smear, and if it comes back abnormal, biopsying and make sure there's nothing really serious causing it, and if it's, a, it's not a malignant thing, then I have to, then I'll freeze the cervix and try and destroy the epithelium to get normal epithelium to grow in, but if I keep getting abnormal pap smears, I have to go to a cone. I have to be able to take a larger biopsy, which requires an anesthetic. I can't do that. I have no place to do that. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, then I, I'm keeping nibbling at, at, at this stuff, but I've got to get the pap smear back to normal. Sure. If I have government care, that's just going to be an easy thing. It'll be done, in the, and it's an outpatient procedure, but somebody has to pay for it. Well, we're going to grapple. What we do on this on this radio show, all rise, is grapple with these very real decisions. And there's pros and cons. I I prefer, as a libertarian, to have the government involvement as little as possible and bring back the competition. Allow you to practice medicine without all the paperwork and all the games and the rest. But we have to come up with a system, not because we have to, because people are entitled, in my opinion, but because we're a compassionate society. There should be a level 
level below which people are not allowed to fall, medically as well as from an economic standpoint. I think that's the libertarian way. But you, doctor, and this is of deep concern to me. Uh, I don't know how long ago it was. I'd say 10 years, whatever it was, when you worked as a medical doctor in a woman's prison here in California, and, and you told me some stories about the, the quality or lack thereof of medical care for female prisoners back then. Please tell us where it was and what your experience was, because all of us in our country should be aware of these situations. Sure. I worked, I worked at the... God, I can finally think that was about 15 years ago. Uh, the women's prison up north, it uh, doesn't matter which prison, because they're all the same, pretty much. And what you do is you, they, you give the medical care that you could give in an outpatient or an office system. And when they had anything more that was required they would have to send the patient to the hospital. And if you send the patient to the hospital, they had to pay hospital rates, maybe reduced rates, but still hospital rates. And you had to send them with a, a someone who would guard the patient because these patients are prisoners, and you can't let them out unguarded. So I, I, do, I can remember one lady who had was a, a drug addict that had been injecting herself. And her whole leg was one scar. I mean, it was just, uh, she had been scarred up so much <clears throat> that it was all scar. And, of course, the scar is just uh, crazy tissue, scar tissue, that doesn't have a very good blood supply. And if you get that infected, it's, it's hell to pay to get it cleaned up. And if you don't clean it up, they're going to lose their leg. And I saw this lady, and I, I talked to the chief because I was a, at that time I was just uh, in the prison system as a relief physician, so, so the other physicians could go on uh, uh, go on their annual vacations. <clears throat> and I, I saw this lady, and I sent her to the chief, and I said she's got to go to the hospital, or, or you know this infection is getting bad. And I saw her the next day, and the infection was worse. And then I really called on them and passed a few goddammits around, and and. Uh, she was sent to the hospital. Well, she spent a month in the hospital getting this infection cleaned up, this crummy little infection. And how much is a month in the hospital just sitting in a bed? Sure. It's forever. You know, but they had to do it because they had to treat her every single day to open this incision and get it cleaned out. And, and because of her leg was nothing but a scar tissue, it wasn't healing very quickly. I mean, it takes forever. And what they did medically was sound, but it's expensive. And we have to make a decision as to where we want to spend our money. Because the government's, how can I put this? Oh, many years ago, the G20 met and they asked people in the G20 to stand up for those countries who had an unsustainable debt that they couldn't sustain and couldn't pay back. And guess what? One of the countries who stood up was the United States of America, and at that time, we owed $12 trillion. Today, we own $23 trillion. Do we even, do you even know if $23 trillion in this whole world exists? If you took all of the monies of all of the countries? I mean, be, be, that's not only unsustainable, it's insanity. Be, be careful, Dr. Fuller. You're talking again like a libertarian. The word will get out. You have to be careful it's, about it's this. Just, it's just, it's, 
it's just, it's just it's an outrage. economics. Everybody has to live, well, to live uh, you know, within their budget, or you, or you can't live. And, well, and, and what's going to happen? You, you get back to preventive health care. I mean, we believe in preventive lawyering as well, that that's where you really save money, you save misery, you save grief. What is the, what is the condition from your experience of preventive health care for females, for women in the California prisons when the time you were there? Is it, is it right there at now, all? It was awful. It was absolutely awful because I would see patients who had... Uh, not only hepatitis B, but hepatitis A, B, and C, and they got no treatment at all. What they do is they would monitor somewhat their their virus loads, and if the loads were not rapidly increasing, they wouldn't treat them, hoping to be able to keep them reasonably healthy until they got out of the hospital when they were on their own, out of the jail until they were on their own. And when I would when I started there, I started in in part of the women's section. Uh, seeing these patients, and when I would see their loads start to increase, I would start to treat them. Once you start them on treatment, it's not an easy treatment. It's a, it's a pretty nasty. This stuff for the, the hepatitis C. Now we've got cures. It's easy, but back then it was a, a tough road to go, and the patients were nauseated, and, the, and uh, they would see you frequently. But if you didn't treat them, you could they could. Get into undeniable damage, even including malignancy of the, of the liver. <clears throat> you just can't sit on, sit on this kind of stuff and hope that if you can get them out of the uh, jail in time for them to survive, that's their problem. I mean, the, that's not preventative treatment. There is no preventative treatments. There is no pap smears. We would take care of the immediate problem. If you had an abscess, I drained it. If you had a, a, a tattoo you want removed, that was tough. That's your problem. If you had a, you know, something that came up now, I, I could treat with antibiotics, sure. I, let me give you the, the ideal, one of the things that happened to me in prison that I, I couldn't not believe. A woman came in who was kind of hefty, and she had no shoes. So the prison gave her shoes. These were boots, high-top boots. But they didn't have any high-top stocks. All what they had was the anklets. So she wore anklets with these high-top boots, and the boots were oh, chafing goodness. her ankles so that she started was bleeding oh. from her ankles. So oh, I came goodness. in, and I put in the chits to get her socks. And they denied the chit because they thought that I wanted her to have opera hose. And I went in and finally said, no, I just want her to have socks so she has something to protect her ankles because her feet are bleeding. I don't know. And then after that, I left. And I have no idea whether she ever got her socks or not. You know, Dr. Earl Fuller, you have, you have mentioned things that it takes good people like you to make the government in circumstances like this act humanely. Had you not been there, you're talking about this lady with the scars and, and, and the, the rest. You know, it's, it should not be required that good people come in and monitor this situation. But, but they are. So that I, I think it was Dostoevsky, if I'm not sure, mistaken, it was one of the Russian writers that said that you can gauge a society by walking inside its prisons. And boy, based upon what you're saying and what I've heard from others as well about violence and, and the lack of nutrition and the rest, we should know this in our society because we are not standing up well in this situation. Anyone that is anyone that is in our custody has an absolute right, a humane right, to be treated at least within a certain standard of care. 
be kept safe. I don't care if it's Al Capone or, or Jack the Ripper. Uh, they should be be protected from other inmates. They should be receiving reasonable nutrition. They should be receiving reasonable medical care. And I think these are horror stories that we should be aghast at. These things that you were talking about, not giving socks. I mean, come on. And, you know, to have these boots rubbing against her ankles and causing them to bleed, causing additional problems, we should be horrified. So on behalf of us all, I thank you openly and publicly for what you've been doing, and we need to continue to spread that word because it's a scar on us as a nation. My God, the, liber- my, the libertarians are beginning to sound like liberal Democrats. I appreciate that, Jim. Well, we're... we're, we're uh, you know, we are actual as liberals. concerned as I am. You're as concerned as everybody else's. People have a right to be treated with dignity, doggone it. And they have a right to be treated with dignity just because they're people. They don't need any other reason. Sure. Sure. I agree. I'm going to tell you a story that uh, my father mm-hmm. was just a hero to me and still is. We lost him a while ago. But he was a federal judge. And he one time went up to Lompoc Federal Prison. Uh, took my mother with him just on an inspection and it turned out the warden said well Judge Gray we're going to have a talent show from the inmates later this afternoon would you like to come? Sure says my father so here we go with this kind of theater the warden sitting in the front row my father next to him my mother next to him and an inmate sits next to my mother and the inmate starts to make conversation said well Mrs. Gray I'm sure you don't know this but your husband sentenced me to be here or she kind of gets a little bit worried. And then the prisoner goes on and says, yes, and he gave me a maximum sentence. My mom's starting to lean over toward my father. But then he went on to say, you know, he treated me with such dignity, with such respect, that he's the best judge I've ever had, and I had lots of judges. And I tell that story because, you know, if you treat people well, even this prisoner, he knew it was good for whatever he got, but you treat people with dignity. You look them in the eye, you say good morning, you treat them with respect, they will treat you with respect. And I know there are others that are psychopaths out there and the rest, but but you treat people well, they're just entitled to that. To the degree that I, I tell folks on this show or elsewhere, if you see somebody with a handicap, you know, I don't care if they're in a wheelchair or some people are noticeably uh, handicapped mentally or physically, whatever, don't turn away. No, look them in the eye and say good morning. They just want to be treated as human beings, just like Dr. Earl Fuller, you're saying. Treat people with human beings, they'll treat you the same way. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that's what that's what is missing, I'm afraid, in our political process today. And I really wish we return it. Uh, and because it's it's setting a bad example for what the rest of the country is doing. It Have you been looking at your emails lately? <laughs> I've seen a couple. Yes. And, and uh, <laughs> Me too. we just, and I, we just all, all I can do is hit the delete button. <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be this way, and we're trying on all rise to focus on the good things as well as the things that need correction. But I think you agree, and, and we differ on some things politically, and that's good. In fact, I'd much prefer to people speak with people that we have different viewpoints and different views than, than uh, the ones that are just all sit and agree how smart we are and agree with each other. So we need to grapple together. And I still remember, I go back that. to... 
Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, who also, of course, you know, had very different different political views, but they could sit down and have a cocktail together, talk together, work together, compromise together. We've lost that, and it's up to us to bring that back. And these open and discussions are the best way of doing no it. way of surviving if we don't get it back. That's exactly right. Well, please do me a favor, doctor. First of all, you're talking about having your heart attack, a major heart attack. Ten years from now, we'll have this discussion again, and we'll go over it again. But promise me, I order you to spend that ten years, and then we'll we'll discuss this again. The other thing that I would ask you is to give my best to your wonderful wife, Marge. Uh, she's a good friend and and another great American citizen. Uh, as we have been talking with a great American citizen, a great human person, Doctor Earl Fuller. I commend you. I didn't ask how your golf handicap is. I guess I'll have to ask that over a glass of wine with you sometime in the near future. But thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you for your, your work. Thank you for who you are, you have been and, and will be. Certainly thank you for your flying physicians, but I would take medical problems or any problems to Dr. Earl Fuller anytime. I think that all of our listeners would do the same for good reason. So thank you for listening. Dr. Earl, thanks for being with us. And tune in again next week for an All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. And you can go to the Voice America channel to uh, find the uh, Variety channel and call up any of these interviews on demand. So thanks for being with us again. Life is good. And I've been a pleasure to be able to share these thoughts with you. Talk to you again soon. Life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen by bonds that help us control. We are Americans all. Strengthen by bonds that help us control.